Hi, welcome back to The Dirt Show. Uh, over the next um, few weeks, probably no longer than about five weeks from now, we anticipate the very, very controversial decision on Roe versus Wade, whether to overrule it, uh, limit it. Um, clearly, something will be done uh, if Justice Alito's opinion really does have five justices supporting it, we will see Roe versus Wade uh, directly overruled. If Justice uh, Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, can persuade one of the other justices, perhaps uh, Justice Kavanaugh, um, to limit the decision to the Mississippi case, which prohibits abortion after 15 weeks, we will see Roe versus Wade substantially cut back, but not expressly overruled. There will still be a woman's constitutional right, at least for the moment, uh, the court will not have eviscerated it, to have an abortion in the first 15 weeks. It won't help women who don't know they're pregnant in 15 weeks, and there are probably many of those, but it will certainly uh, allow many women uh, to get abortions who would not be able to get abortions in states that would outlaw it if Roe versus Wade was completely overruled. Two groups of people, two groups of people believe that if Roe versus Wade is overruled, the next step will be to overrule birth control rights, to overrule the right of gay people to marry, to overrule even the right of a black man to marry uh, a white uh, woman. Both extremes indicate that that is a likely result of overruling Roe versus Wade. The difference is that People on the extreme right hope that happens and will do everything in their power to see that it happens. They will litigate ferociously to try to overrule gay marriage and interracial marriage and, and contraception rights, uh, whereas the other group fears it and worries and says that's the reason Roe versus Wade, among others, shouldn't be overruled because if that's overruled, the next step will be to have the government in our bedrooms telling us what kinds of birth control we can and can't use. Both extremes are wrong, I believe. Um, I believe the Supreme Court will, if not this next month, within the next couple of years, overrule Roe versus Wade. But I also believe they will not overrule uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, which accorded uh, married couples and presumably not married couples as well the right to use birth control of any kind that they uh, choose. It will also not overrule the right of people to marry people of another race, and it will also, this is the most controversial, but I think it will also not overrule the right of a gay man to marry a gay man, a gay woman to marry a gay woman. Why do I believe that? Because there's an enormous difference between the abortion case and these other three cases. Yeah, they all involve the right to privacy. Yeah, the right to privacy is not specifically mentioned in the constitutional, as I've told you, the Fourth Amendment talks about the right to be secure in one's person, and security was the word used in 1790s to mean privacy. But still, there's no right of abortion in the Constitution. There is a right to own and bear arms, although that's limited by the militia statement, but there is there's reference to guns, arms in the Constitution. There's no reference to um, either abortion or specifically to the word um, uh, privacy. And so, 
both sides are, 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 are concerned, one in a positive way, one in a negative way, that once Roe versus Wade is overruled on the ground that privacy does not afford a woman the right to have an abortion, it will follow logically. The right says, yay, it's going to follow logically. The left says, oi, it's going to follow logically, but they both think it's going to follow logically that these other rights, contraception and the right to marriage, which were also based on the right to privacy, will go, no, no, they won't. What's the difference between these two cases? In order to understand the difference, I've come up with a new term that I've never heard before, I've never seen before, so I'm coining it, uh, and tell me what you think of it. I'm coining the term victimless rights. We've, we know about victimless crimes. Uh, victimless rights. What's a victimless right? A right to do something that doesn't interfere with anyone else. A right to do something that doesn't clash with any other right. The right to have contraceptives, who does it interfere with? If some fundamentalist believes that people who practice contraception are going to hell, that's their problem. Um, uh, law doesn't affect sins. Uh, if you think that somebody using contraceptive is a sin, and, and I don't, um, I get to make that decision, not you. I'll decide whether I want to risk hell uh, to do that. Nobody else is affected by my decision to use birth control except my spouse, my girlfriend. And, and so if we agree that we want to use contraception, it's nobody else's business. It's a victimless right. The same is true with gay marriage. A man wants to marry a man. Big deal. Who, who's affected? The woman he would otherwise marry? That's absurd. No, no, it's not going to have that effect. It has no effect at all. A man marrying another man, a woman marrying another woman, is just nobody's damn business. The same is true with interracial marriage. Oh, it used to be terribly upsetting to imagine a black man marrying a white woman. No, nobody has the right to be upset about that. If you don't like it, don't socialize with them. Uh, write an op-ed disapproving of it. Uh, go to your rabbi, minister, and priest and complain about it. But the law has nothing to say about, about that. Um, nobody's affected. These are victimless rights. Now, let's contrast that with abortion. Abortion is not a victimless right. Whether you believe the fetus is a full-fledged human being or a life in being in anticipation, whether you believe that life begins at conception or it begins after the first month or the first two months or three months, the one thing everybody has to admit is that a fetus is a something. It's a something. And people have the right to be concerned about that something. An old friend of mine named Florence Kennedy, who was one of the leaders of the abortion rights movement back in the, literally in the 1960s and early 70s, famously said and repeatedly said that uh, no court should have to permit a woman to have an abortion any more than they should have to permit a woman to have an appendectomy. She repeatedly compared the fetus with 
an appendix or tonsils that are, are removed. And of course, if, if we're talking about an appendectomy or a tonsillectomy, then it, it's a victimless right. No appendix or, or, or tonsil has the right to be protected by the state. But if you believe that the fetus is different than an appendix, the fetus is different than tonsils, if you believe that it is a something, not a nothing, and remember, an appendix is a nothing, a tonsil is a nothing. Nobody ever regretted having to remove an appendix if the operation went uh, successfully. Uh, there's no moral choice there when it comes to an appendix. An appendix can just be, you know, tossed in the wastebasket when it's removed after it's obviously biopsied for any uh, further illnesses. But it's a nothing, a nothing, a nothing. No matter what you think of a fetus, I believe in a woman's right to choose uh, abortion. I think that my own view is that the woman's right outweighs the interests, or you might argue the rights, of a fetus, certainly at an early stage in the pregnancy. But even if you take that view, you have to acknowledge it's a something, that the law has the right to take into account a potential life or a life with a heartbeat, a life that conceivably can feel pain. I don't want to resolve any of those scientific issues. I don't know when the fetus feels pain. I don't know what the implications are of a, of a heartbeat, but it's a something. It's a something. The law is entitled to protect it. The best evidence of that is if a woman is pregnant and somebody deliberately kicks her in the stomach in order to involuntarily prevent the birth of the child, that man is guilty of a very, very serious crime, even if he didn't hurt the woman, if he killed the fetus. The fetus is a something, and the fetus does get protection of the law in certain instances, in certain contexts, not necessarily in other contexts. So abortion is a weighing of rights. It's a weighing of interests. And those of us who support a woman's right to have an abortion have decided whether it should be a legislative decision, an individual decision, a judicial decision, it's a different matter. But those of us who support a woman's right to have an abortion have decided to opt for the woman's rights and interests over the interests of the fetus. But we've decided to strike a balance. There is a clash of rights, a clash of values. Not so with an appendix. You want to make an analogy to appendix? Fine. Gay marriage is an analogy to appendix. Because it's nobody's business if I have my appendix out. Nobody's business if I have sex with another man. It's nobody's business if I use contraception. It's nobody's business if I have my appendix or tonsils removed. It's nobody's business. So I distinguish sharply between victimless rights and rights that clash with other rights that may involve a balancing of rights, a choice of evils. And, and nobody thinks that an abortion is a good thing for the fetus. It may be a good thing for the woman, but it's not a good thing for the fetus. So there is a clash of rights. There is a clash of interests. There is a choice of evils. And the question is, who gets to make that choice? I think the woman gets to make that choice. That's why I support a woman's right to have an abortion. Those of you who think that the woman should not have that right or that the legislatures of every state should decide whether the woman 
has that right. We, we differ. We differ on our interpretation of the Constitution. We differ on our interpretation uh, of rights. Now, you know, there is a similarity between these cases, between abortion on the one hand and marital and conception rights on the other hand. They're both outgrowths of the right of privacy, which is not specifically enumerated in the Constitution. So there is a similarity, but the differences are far, far greater than the similarities. Now, cases don't get decided on the basis of victimless rights. This is a concept I've just invented, essentially, and just coined the phrase. But I think it's really very much worth considering, and in fact, courts do take that into account. That's why we have concepts like standing and case and controversy. Um, if you don't like somebody using birth control, you can't bring a lawsuit to stop them. You don't have standing. If you don't like the fact that somebody got married to another man or to a person of a different race, too bad. You have no standing. The court won't recognize you. You're not a victim of that act. You may feel terrible about it. You may feel upset about it. I think I've told you the story before once when I was speaking to an Orthodox group um, in, in Miami, Florida, and a woman got up and was appalled that I would support gay rights. She says, when I think of a man having sex with another man, it just disgusts me, disgusts me, and I have the right to stop it. And, and I said to her, ma'am, I just want to ask you one question. When you have sex with your husband, are you on top? <gasps> How dare you ask that question? You're right, I shouldn't ask that question. It's none of my business. Just like it's none of your business whether a man has sex with another man. And I got a standing applause from the Orthodox Jewish uh, audience, which tends to be somewhat conservative on some of these social issues. But I think we all understand that it's none of our business what people do in their bedroom, in the privacy of their bedroom. None of our business who people marry. It's none of our business who uses birth control and who doesn't use birth control. But it may be the government's business when a fetus is involved, particularly a fetus that's six months or seven months or even five months, it's a something. It's a clash and a balance of rights. And courts do take that into account. They don't say it. I don't know any opinion that actually goes into this distinction between victimless rights and rights with alleged victims. And there are, of course, close cases. There are close cases. A lot of people will tell you that guns are not victimless rights that the people who were shot by criminals in Buffalo uh, who had access to guns, they're, they're, they're victims. But it's, it's harder. It's harder because, you know, it's not as, as, as direct. Um, uh, the vast majority of people who have guns don't hurt anybody else. So for the most part, gun ownership is a, is a victimless crime. Affirmative action, um, which we spoke about last week, is also a, a, a closer question for every person given the benefit of affirmative action, there is somebody who is more qualified, perhaps, who was denied admission. It's a zero-sum game. Admissions to universities is a zero-sum game. So for every winner, there's a loser. So there we have a balance of rights, too. Or take the area of law that I specialize in. Getting guilty people off of criminal prosecution because of a violation of the Constitution. I overstated. I've had innocent clients. I've had a lot of innocent clients. I've gotten most of them off, not all of them. I've had innocent clients convicted. Hopefully, I've gotten them reversed at some point on appeal, but not, not every one of them. But I have gotten guilty defendants off. I've gotten them to walk the street 
because of the Fourth Amendment, the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment. And so are those victimless rights? No, uh, those are close questions. There isn't a direct association. I've never had a client who I've won his case, and then he's gone on and committed another serious, heinous uh, murder or, or a serious crime. Obviously, O.J. Simpson was an example of somebody who was prosecuted for another crime, a made-up crime, in my view, um, after he was acquitted of the, of the double uh, murder. So there are cases that fall into this intermediate category, but abortion, on the one hand, and marital rights, on the other hand, are very different, are very different. One clearly has no victims whatsoever. The marital cases bear no relationship to guns, to freeing criminal defendants, to affirmative action. There isn't even a pretense of a victim. I challenge any of you to come up with a victim, to come up with a countervailing right that you can state against marital privacy rights. On the other hand, when it comes to abortion, you can. You can come up with countervailing interests and countervailing rights. So this is my contribution of the day to legal scholarship. I've invented the concept of victimless rights. Tell me what you think of it and whether you think it will influence the courts. I'm not saying that you're going to see an opinion writing that that's the difference, but I think it will impact on judges. And so my prediction is that Roe versus Wade will be overruled, if not in this decision within the next couple of years, but that that will not necessarily lead to the overruling of conception rights, gay rights, and interracial marriage rights. You'll test my prediction. Here it is. It's on videotape. You'll have it forever. If I'm wrong, I'll apologize. I'm not wrong. Uh, before we go to questions, let me talk to you about my wonderful sponsor. Do you own a small business and need help growing it? Then uh, AnthemSoftware.com is your one-stop solution. Anthem Software helps small businesses all over America to find, serve, and keep more customers profitably by providing world-class CRM software and results-focused marketing services. Your business will not only grow but dominate in this highly competitive modern world. That's AnthemSoftware.com. Every business has a song. Let AnthemSoftware.com help you sing yours. Visit AnthemSoftware.com to schedule your free demo of this amazing solution. So let's turn to some letters. There were quite a few interesting letters. Remember that what I focused on in the last um, episode of the Dirt Show was race-specific affirmative action and whether the Supreme Court will abolish it and whether if they do, there'll be a movement toward meritocracy or there'll be attempts to circumvent the decision of the Supreme Court and create a new form of racial ceilings and floors which manage to evade uh, judicial uh, review. I suspect the latter is what's going to happen. I hope it's the former that does happen. But I expressed my views quite clearly on the last third show, and here are, here are some of the responses. 
Um, the regressive left is quick to play fast and loose with the word racism, but they are conspicuously silent about admissions preferences. Affirmative action is merely a euphemism for racism, especially as the PC, SJW, cultural Marxist sect selectively defines the term. Well, no, I don't agree with that. First of all, not all affirmative action is based on race or need be based on race. If you have a person who grew up in Appalachia with an opiate-addicted mother and a drug-addled father, and uh, he or she managed to claw their way up to the top of a second-rate public school, uh, this may be a potential Nobel Prize winner. Uh, This is a diamond in the rough, like so many people from my community were diamonds in the rough. Uh, The immigrant population that preceded my parents' population had people who couldn't read and write, and their children and grandchildren won Nobel Prizes. So affirmative action doesn't always have to focus on race. It can focus on what you've accomplished based on where you come from. In other words, if you have two people, uh, say the one who went to a a very fancy high school and got all kind of uh, preps for his SAT, and let's assume he got, if you combine scores on the basis of 100, he got a 90. And this other guy or woman uh, came from the Ozarks and went through all the things I talked about and didn't have a prep course, and she had an 88 on a score of 100, you know, I would probably prefer the 88 over the 90 based on where they came from and projecting forward where they're likely to go um, based on the the, the hard work that um, one of them had to do more than the other to get where they are. So not all affirmative action is based on race, and uh, even not all racial affirmative action is necessarily racist. It's intended to do something important, to create diversity in the classroom. I think it does it at the cost of meritocracy, and on the end, I'm, I'm, kind, of, uh, I'm, I'm kind of against it, and I hope the Supreme Court will write a thoughtful decision about that. And um, somebody else wrote to me, and said, Dersh, a great idea, only 30 years too late. Hey, I wish you had written, read my articles. It was just about 30 years ago that I wrote my first article in the Cardozo Law Review against race-based affirmative action, making some of the same suggestions that I made on the show, Substituting Meritocracy. So I've been at this for 30 years. Actually, I've been at it for closer to 50 years. Um, When the Supreme Court first started writing decisions about this, in the DeFunis case, in the Bakke case, and other cases, I was always a critic of race-based affirmative action, of racial quotas, racial flaws, uh, floors, racial ceilings. So I'm not 30 years uh, too late. You're 30 years too late in not reading my articles. 30 and 40 years ago, but I I understand your point. Um, Okay, Professor Dershowitz is a Democrat socialist. Nothing could be further from the truth. I'm opposed to socialism. I'm in favor of free market economics. I am in favor of a safety net. I'm a kind of New Deal Democrat, and the New Deal saved capitalism, so I'm not a social Democrat. 
I am strongly opposed to socialism. I would not vote for Liz Warren. I would not vote for AOC. I would not vote for uh, 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 any of the others who call themselves socialists. But he condemns affirmative action. Such a stance requires principles and take guts, especially in today's critical race theory idiot culture. I do not share Professor Dershowitz's political alliances, but I deeply respect and admire him on the issues nonetheless. But I'm not a socialist. Thanks, however, for your, for your compliments. Um, then one note says, too late, the IVs have become a joke because of the lowering of standards. Now, the IVs are not a joke, but they're not nearly as good as they were um, some years ago. The standards have been lowered. When I went to Yale Law School, um, we had a curve system of grading. For every A, there was an F. For every B, there was a D. And the median grade was C. In my first year in law school, I got, I can't remember, three A's or four A's and a C. I got a C in contracts. I was so mad at the contracts teacher, I took her advanced course and I got an A plus just to get even. But I got a C. Um, and that was regarded as perfectly acceptable. I was second in the class after the first year with a C. Uh, because grades were much, much, much lower. Um, even when I went to Brooklyn College, the, the median grade was probably something like a B minus or a C plus. B was a good grade. Today you have to struggle to get a B the opposite way. Almost everybody gets B pluses, A minuses, A's. Um, the uh, grade inflation uh, has uh, become rampant, and I think standards have been lowered, particularly in the social sciences and the humanities, not as much in the sciences, but very much so in the social sciences and the humanities, to the point where I think a student today, a bright student, could go to Harvard College, major in the humanities or major in social sciences, never go to class, never open up a book, and pass with a B average. That's my challenge. Not only do I think that could happen, I think it has happened. And I think there, you know, in the old days we talked about gentlemen C's. Today there are gentlemen and gentlemen, gentlewomen B's, people who just waste four years of college, getting drunk, getting laid, having fun, but absolutely no concern for academics because they figure what's the, what's the use? It doesn't matter. We're not going to be judged on the merits anyway, and we're going to get B's even if we show up. I mean, just write some drivel on your exam and you'll get a B. You know, you went to a good high school to get into Harvard, um, so you know something about writing. Um, students work very, very hard. Some do. I know some do. But, boy, there are an awful lot of them who don't. Uh, and, by the way, that's true at Harvard Law School as well. In my last few years at Harvard Law School, I saw students just drift, just drift through the school and get themselves their B minuses and, and graduate. And if they had fancy names or, or fancy uh, backgrounds, they got their jobs uh, in any event. So it, it didn't much matter. The problem is they have to serve people. And what I worry about is this spreading to medical schools. As I've often said, whatever you want to do about affirmative action, fine. But when I have a surgeon, and when I have a pilot, I want both of them to be picked purely on meritocracy. I want my surgeon to be the best. I want my pilot to be the best. I was recently in a situation on an airplane where we went through a, basically a monsoon. And thank God we had a phenomenal pilot who got us through it. I had my whole family on the plane. 
And the first thing I was begging for is, please let this be the most highly qualified pilot we can have. And I've recently been through some surgical procedures. Again, I want the very best regardless of race. It turns out that the person who took me through some of these uh, difficult and complex procedures was an African-American doctor who was absolutely fantastic, no surprise. Because if you have a meritocracy, you're going to get diversity of every single kind. But what we want is diversity based on meritocracy, diversity that comes out of meritocracy, not artificial diversity based on superficial factors. Okay, last couple of questions. So then somebody talks about me and, 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 and uh, my ideas and says, says the most racist, most powerful white man on the planet. I guess he's referring to me. I'm not powerful. I'm not racist. And yeah, I am white. That's about all you can say. And then the last one, a white that votes for Democrats is no different than a Jew voting for Hitler. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's, it's quite, quite a bit different. Um, I'm white. I'm Jewish. I voted for Democrats. I voted for Biden. I would not have voted for Hitler. I would have assassinated him if I had the chance to uh, do so. It's an absurd analogy. You can disagree with Democrats, but the idea of comparing Democrats to Nazism and comparing Democratic candidates to Hitler is absurd and bigoted and, and wrong. And so please write to me, particularly write to me about this idea that I've had about victimless rights, and we'll continue these and other thoughts in the days to come. See you tomorrow.